Shop Talk is our Thursday morning episode we produce every week with a focus on labor education, history, and training. It's Thursday, March 30th, and we're broadcasting live from Spice Radio Studio in the heart of the Tennessee Valley in Huntsville, Alabama. Every episode is live streamed on YouTube and Facebook and is released on your favorite podcasting platform. Today on the show, we're going to do a little bit of labor history talk and study in the working class with Max Frazier. Really looking forward to that. Just a reminder that the Valley Labor Report is a working class media collective dedicated to lifting up the labor struggles throughout Alabama and across the South. We bring you Alabama's only union talk radio show every Saturday morning with the first half from 9.30 to 11 a.m. live on FM radio through WVNN here in the Huntsville listening area. The entire program is online via Facebook, YouTube, and podcast, and portions of the program are replayed on WZZA in the Shoals and WHIV out of New Orleans. We encourage folks to check out our website, tvlr.fm, which we're currently expanding to feature regularly published articles, including news and commentary relevant to working people. You can check out our merch at tvlr.fm store. And finally, we rely on donations and sponsorships to do all of this. We really appreciate the local unions and organizations that have sponsored ads, and our single biggest source of contributions comes from listener donations. You can make a one-time donation or a recurring contribution at tvlr.fm donate. We also have a Patreon if you prefer to donate that way, uh, and you can even send us a good old-fashioned check to our P.O. Box. So you can check tvlr.fm for more ways to donate, more ways to support the program. Whether you donate, share, subscribe, or just listen, we really appreciate your support, and we can't do it without you. We put all of this content out for free because we're dedicated to growing the Southern labor movement. If you share this mission, please support however you can so we can have media of, by, and for the working class. So, good morning again. I appreciate everyone tuning in. Uh, looking forward to this conversation today with Max Frazier. So, last couple of weeks I've been more on the labor education, labor training spectrum. Uh, we're going to switch gears back towards some labor history today. And Max Frazier is an assistant pr- professor at the University of Miami's Department of History. His scholarship is based broadly on 20th century American labor and political history with some regional focus on the South, Appalachia, and the Midwest, and with a topical focus on the white working classes and the politics and culture of popular conservatism. So, obviously, his research is very relevant to our audience. He's got a new book coming out in September, which deals with some of this, uh, particularly as it pertained to the mid-20th century migration of Southern white workers to the industrial Midwest. The book is called Hillbilly Highway, The Trans-Appalachian Migration and the Making of a White Working Class, released by Princeton University Press. Frazier also spent years working as a journalist, writing for magazines like The Nation and Dissent about labor, economics, and popular politics and covering the business community and its political machinations for a labor studies journal called New Labor Forum. At the University of Miami, he teaches classes on a variety of similar topics in American history since the end of Reconstruction. So really looking forward to this conversation with Max. Um, 
I hooked up with Max through the Labor and Working Class History Association, LACHA. So uh, I'm a big fan. I'm a relatively new member. Highly recommend it for those of you who are interested in this sort of thing. So, Max, welcome to the Valley Labor Report. Thank you for joining. Ah, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. So I gave something of an introduction to you and to your work, but uh, could you give us a little bit more about your background and really your journey in terms of studying the American working class? Yeah, sure. I'd be glad to. Um, without getting into maybe too uh, deep uh, a personal history, I, um, I, I, after, uh, I began my work uh, writing about and covering labor history and, and really the contemporary labor movement as a working journalist, which I did um, for a bunch of years uh, before um, pursuing my graduate study in, in American history. I, as I, as you, you said in your very kind introduction, writing about the labor movement and sort of labor politics and labor issues um, for national magazines like The, the Nation, where I uh, worked on staff for a bunch of years and and other publications of that kind, uh, political magazines um, with real investments in working class politics and the in, in supporting and advancing the goals of uh, the labor movement um, and who engaged in thought of journalism, you know, as a kind of activist pursuit, you might say. That was right. sort of my my approach to journalism. Um, and then um, I've. Um, still write for journalistic outlets to some extent, but have over the last decade or so uh, went, went back to school, got my PhD in American history with a particular focus on uh, labor and working class history, and uh, now write uh, scholarship and, and more popular essays about topics in 20th century American labor history. Uh, and as you said, I'm sort of particularly interested in the, the politics and culture of what um, of this big amorphous, though often ill-defined category we hear a lot about in the mainstream media and elsewhere, the white working class. Um, right. um, but a, a, an idea which is often undefined and, and, and thrown, thrown around kind of casually and dismissively by, um, you know, uh, media voices politicians and others. And I, I right. try in my research to understand more deeply and rigorously how um, different groups of white working people have uh, their sort of material experiences during the 20th century and how it's shaped their um, cultural identity and political behavior in different contexts. And so that's what my uh, research is about. It's the book that you mentioned before, which I'm happy to talk more about is uh, is one such take on. And then my day job is I teach classes in American history at the University of Miami for undergraduates and graduate students there. I teach broadly in the American sort of uh, about American political and cultural history, but my interest really is in the experiences of um, working people uh, in how economic um, uh, dynamics shape um, American politics and and society and have throughout the 19th and 20th century. And I try to give students in my classes a, a deeper appreciation for when they think about the history of American politics, say that that politics is not only shaped by political elites, leaders, politicians of various kinds, but is in really important ways shaped by the experiences and desires, behavior, activity, actions, votes of working people in different contexts. And so to give a kind of um, class-based uh, history of American political life over the 20th century. So I think of that as, you know, one of the real sort of goals of being a member of an organization like LACHA, the Labor and Working Class History Association, to keep class and work and the experience of laboring people front and center and how we think about and teach uh, American history. Right, absolutely. And and I, I think it's really cool that you have the journalistic background as well. And, you know, you have been writing about and talking about the working class for a long time, but 
from these different perspectives, uh, from the classroom perspective, from the researcher perspective, from the journalistic perspective. And I think that uh, I think that only adds to, uh, you know, only adds to your work and adds to your perspective uh, because, you know, it's different means of trying to reach people. But at the end of the day, as you said, you're trying to, to sh you're trying to illustrate for folks the agency they have as workers uh, and as members of a working class uh, and what that means. And so I, I, I really I appreciate you, uh, you know, telling us a little bit about your journey there. And um, well, thanks for I saying so, Adam. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and I'm interested in this new book and, you know, of course, want you to tell us a little bit about it. But, you know, what got you? You know, what what led to this being the book that you wanted to write? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I can I can tell you there's a good succinct story which sort of sums up uh, or the, the personal history that I was just going through in many ways. Right. So um, in the 2011, the summer of 2011, I spent some time working as a, a journalist at that point, um, reporting an, a long article for Descent magazine that was um, aimed to, this was 2011, so it was in the aftermath of the Great Recession of 2007 and 8, and the real upswing in what you might call austerity politics as a response to that in, in uh, states around the country, which were, were led by conservative Republican uh, state leaders of various kinds. And my editors at Dissent wanted someone to uh, write an article that kind of painted a portrait of working class life in the age of austerity. That was my sort of uh, uh, assignment. Um, and to do that as broadly as I could with the limits of time and resources and the fact that it's a very big country and Right. A lot of different kinds of working class communities out there, and you could spend years working on what would be a book. And they had, I had a month to produce a five or six thousand <laughs> word word article. Um, yeah, just explain life as a worker in America. Six thousand words. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but I've always I I appreciated the 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 challenge of it, um, right. and so I um, charted a. I was based in New York City at the time, and I charted a sort of geography that I could travel by car within reach of that, um, that tried to move through a variety of different kinds of working class spaces, if not necessarily the most geographically far flung. Um, I couldn't cover the whole continent, um, but I did try to spend time in uh, deindustrialized rust belt uh, settings and in parts of the South, the kind of burgeoning Eds and Meds economy of places like Nashville, uh, the the kind of industrializing rural South in different places, the uh, try to move through different kinds of working class communities um, to talk to different kinds of working people and in different kinds of uh, contexts to give a sense of what that um, experience was like. And I produced an article for that, which was called uh, Down and Out in the New Middletowns um, that that appeared in the winter of 2012. And I think it was a good article and, you know, I can send you a link to it or something. Um, but one of the experiences that I had while reporting that article, which didn't necessarily become a subject of the article itself, but became very directly the, the origins of this book was spending time in um, the a small Indiana city of, of Muncie, Indiana, um, okay. which some people might know because it has this um, uh, famous in a small, maybe sort of academic sort of way as being the setting of a very influential book, best-selling book of the 1920s, uh, by a pair of cultural anthropologists named um, Robert and Helen Lynn. They were a husband and wife called Middletown. And Middletown was this big book of cultural anthropology, but it was became a big bestseller. I mean, it was one of those kind of academic books that become a real popular sensation because right. the authors were attempting to do something that hadn't really been done before, which was to write like anthropologists about not some foreign exotic 
group of people on the other side of the earth, but a, as they called it, a representative American community um, and city. Um, and they chose Muncie, Indiana as a, what they call the sort of um, average kind of American city of that time. Not, not a huge city, not a small town, the sort of demographic average of the country right. in that moment. And they anonymized it. They made it anonymous. They called it Middletown. Um, and ever since then, uh, Muncie, Indiana has been this sort of stand-in that academics, journalists, politicians return to because it's supposed to be, or it was in this famous way, the average American town. And so repeating that sort of pattern, I went to Muncie for this um, piece of reporting that I did. Muncie throughout the middle of the 20th century became a real critical node in the Midwestern, Midwestern auto um, supply chain, um, home to a number of quite large General Motors, um, parts uh, subsidiaries and other uh, uh, kind of um, car manufacturers, um, as well as um, um, manufacturing enterprises of other kinds. So it became a really um, never never a Detroit or a Cleveland, like a really major uh, large city, but a but a significant um, small to mid-sized node in the in the Midwestern industrial economy of the mid 20th century. And then as those jobs left that part of the country, became a kind of emblematic Rust Belt city, lost all of its right. Um, industrial employment and um, and so part of what brought me there was what was life like in Muncie today now that it had become a kind of um, example of you know this one kind of typical working class community um, so that's what brought me to Muncie and when I was there I spent a lot of time talking to out of work auto workers and their families most of whom were clustered on the south side of Muncie, which was always since the beginning of the 20th century, since the Lynns were writing about it in that famous book, The Working Class Side of Town. The middle and upper classes lived in North Muncie. The working classes lived in South Muncie. That's where all the factories were located. So it was a you know less attractive, more industrial, dirtier part of town always. And then when those factories closed down, it became a more impoverished um, part of town. And I was struck as I talked to people who had lived in Muncie their whole lives, who'd seen the ups and downs of that industrial economy there, um, how many people I spoke to had experiences themselves, if they were somewhat older, uh, retired retirees or or family experiences if they were younger members of that Muncie working class with the South and how many of their families, they themselves or their families had come to Muncie um, during the 20th century from okay. parts of the rural upper South. And the more I asked about it, because I was just, you know, like I said, this wasn't the subject of the article that right. I wrote, but it was something I was curious about. The more it became clear to me, the more I learned that they didn't just all come, that not only they all come from the South, but many of them came from Tennessee and not just Tennessee, but a real remarkable majority of them from East Tennessee and not just East Tennessee, but this one county in East Tennessee, Fentress County and its county right. seat, Jamestown, which today has a population of a thousand people that everybody I spoke to either came from this tiny town rural town of Jamestown, Tennessee, or knew somebody who had. Um, and it was this remarkable, very powerful migratory connection that had connected this part of Eastern sort of Appalachian kind of foothills of East Tennessee with um, this Midwestern industrial city during the mid 20th century. And I never encountered much about that in what little I had already read by that point, or not that little actually, right. about American history. I was familiar with the great migration of Black Southerners 
um, to the Northeast and Midwest and the Pacific uh, states and, and West Coast cities during the 20th century, right? This famous migration of um, African-American sharecroppers and others fleeing Jim Crow and um, the sort of extreme poverty of, of, the, of the Jim Crow South for life in, in Northern cities and jobs in Northern cities. And I knew about the Oki migration, the Dust Bowl migration of the 1930s and 40s from the um, Southern Great Plains to California and places like that, famous from books like Grapes of Wrath or right. Um, right. these kinds of things. But I had not encountered uh, much about the movement of Southern, Southern Appalachian working people up to the Midwest. And yet the experience, it became clear to me that I encountered in this in these conversations with working people in Muncie for that piece of journalism were reproduced all throughout the region, um, both all throughout other industrial cities of the Midwest, Detroit, Chicago, and Cleveland, Cincinnati, Dayton, Ohio, Akron, et cetera, et cetera. And throughout the sort of rural upper South broadly, the kind of uh, white Appalachian South um, more generally. Uh, and so telling that story, that sort of regional history of this right. working class migration uh, between the Upper South and the industrial Midwest during the 20th century, which I first encountered in that um, piece of reporting, um, became the subject of this book of mine, which is now uh, 10 years later, finally done <laughs> and, 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 and ready to be published. So. Yeah. So, I mean, the story, you just sort of ran into the story. You didn't necessarily go looking for this pattern. You just couldn't help but see the pattern. Yeah. A good right. reminder to any um, uh, graduate students or uh, historians in training out there that, as you had said before, it really is useful to talk to people, right? The way a journalist does. And and you and you things that I, I, I came across this topic of, of historical research through not reading books or or only reading books and not only right. doing the kind of archival work that of course I then did years of to write the book, but through doing the kind of talking to real people that you do as a journalist, gathering their stories and then trying to um, understand the, the big historical events that are tied up in people's everyday lives, even if they don't think of it that way. And I don't think anybody who I was talking to about that very personal history had a sense that they were part of some big historical process, but um, they were in really right. profound and important ways that I try to document and, and, and elevate in, in this book that I've written um, to try to connect the personal, the mundane, the everyday, the things that working people experience all the time and and don't think of as significant because they're told it's not significant, right? Or they're not allowed to believe it is significant, that there is really profound significance to those stories um, in their lives, in the lives of their communities, and then as importantly in the life in the life of the country and the big, big political and cultural dynamics of of our of our national history um in during these years. Right, right. And yeah, there's a lot, uh, you know, a lot we could dig in there. Um, one thing that I, I'm particularly interested in is, you know, you mentioned Jamestown, Tennessee, and how it's just a small town. Uh, so I'm I'm curious, like, what have you learned in terms of the South that was left behind, right, by these folks? Um, is that fairly, was that fairly common that, you know, these communities now are are small and and don't really have a lot going on i mean is that yeah. what you found in the course of your research with these southern communities that were like a home base of migrants yeah well you know the the communities that i mean southerners of all races and all classes left the south in great numbers during the course of the 20th century um the story that i tell is particularly focused on one very large group within that right which are um which were the which were um 
Southerners, overwhelmingly white from the rural upper South places in the uh, in the Southern regional economy, which were either um, heavily agricultural um, and not sort of uh, plantation crop, um, right? Uh, sort of high value agriculture, uh, the more sort of marginal terrain, subsistence style, Subsi yeah, subsistence yeah. or you know, right, a various kind of combination of subsistence farming and foraging and um you know logging and at a certain point a certain a pretty intensive um industrialization of you know a kind of resource extraction particularly coal mining but other kinds of things as well but largely a, a rural a rural economies right and that um did not ever go through the kind of intensive um, industrial development that larger southern cities like Birmingham or Huntsville say, right, mm -hmm. where you're where you're based for the broadcast um, experience. These were the more marginal terrain of this of the southern countryside, um, and in those places, yeah, th this is a migration which um, was spurred by the not only the the um, economic, um, you might say, um, the, the lack of um, economic opportunity that existed in those places at the beginning of the 20th century, but the sort of diminishing economic conditions in those places over the course of the 20th century, that in a sense, um, many places like um, Jamestown, Tennessee, Fentress County, that part of East Tennessee where I, I spent some time in addition to other places doing research for this book, gathering oral histories and stories of people who lived there and, and um, was not only poor, but getting poorer. You know, right. um, the, like uh, the best days had already passed by. And yeah. Nothing to look forward to. Right. That, that the kind of 20th century industrial economy either overlooks these places altogether, um, brings only, in the case of a place like Jamestown, the most um, hyper-exploitative, low-paid, non-union labor characteristic of parts of the rural South. I'm thinking about mm. things like textiles, poultry right. processing, these real like crap jobs um, that that never pay much, that are are um, you know, uh, viciously anti-union, right. That are, um, throughout the, throughout the century. Um, so, so yeah, these remain and are to this day places where a lack of economic opportunity forces working class Southerners to seek out work elsewhere. Um, part of what I wanted to emphasize in my book is that for this sizable portion of the mid-century white working class, familiar cliches about the mid-20th century being an era of economic um, well-being, security, material abundance for working people, which is true in many contexts, right? For certain segments of the organized working class who you know are 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 making good union wages and have pensions and health care and cost of living adjustments and all the great things that the union uh, movement was able to win for industrial workers during the mid 20th century for this large segment of the pop that was never the case really um right. that there that much more defining or as defining of their experience throughout these decades was the kind of enforced mobility of, you know, hustling to find work, leaving your home place and your community and your family because there was just nothing to do there and traveling hundreds of miles to get a job at the bottom of the factory hierarchy in Muncie or Cleveland or wherever it else, you know, and trying to make a stake there or maybe just earn enough in wages to go back to where your family was and a lot of the people i talked to and the these the travelers along the so-called hillbilly highway were people who were always going back and forth never really wanting to leave behind places right. like jamestown trying to figure out ways to um 
do well enough on their travels to to bring that money back and maybe buy a small piece of land to engage in their own kind of uh, marginal farming or other kind of uh, work. So um, insecurity, uh, um, transience, um, uh, marginality, you know, these kinds of concepts for, for many people in these more impoverished corners of the rural South and of Southern Appalachia is much more defining of their experience and of what drives this migration to the Midwest uh, during during the period that I focused on. And and still to this day, I mean, in, in many ways, still to this day, you know, uh, um, it is certainly true, as I'm, as you know, probably better than I do, being uh, located where you are and embedded in this more immediately, the rural, you know, when places like Muncie and Detroit and Cleveland started losing industrial jobs in the 60s and 70s, many of them began moving to more rural pockets of the South. And you see things like the Southern Automotive Corridor take shape around that time, in part because these are less well-regulated um, labor markets with lower floors for wages, and it's possible to pay workers less in foreign transplant firms to keep the UAW out and things like that. Um, so some corners of the rural South do go through a kind of economic uh, are different look different economically today more industrial um, better paying factory jobs than throughout much of the 20th century but but in many ways the story is a continuous one of of this sort of marginal low wage economy um, and and of course uh, largely non union um, right right I mean that's really what resonated with me was how much of this is a continuum and you know there. Are so many places right here in Alabama and across the South where, sure, you know, you still are sort of faced with that choice of do you, if you want some form of an economic future, it probably comes with migration. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, my wife teaches in a very rural school where, uh, you know, many of those families, there's not a lot there, frankly. Yeah. Uh, you know, if they, if they want to do something different besides go work at the, the chicken plant, right where, you know, or the Walmart, it's right. probably going to, you know, they're going to hit the highway. Yeah. Uh, and so a lot of that has continued. And and then, uh, as you point out, some of that working class has like migrated back, perhaps with, right. uh, with the automotive industry. And, you know, but we're seeing, we're, we're only seeing like a form of that industry, right? You know, we're right. seeing... We're seeing the post-union version of the industry and and kind of a neoliberal version of that industry. Absolutely. Um, so you know, those of us in the South are still only getting pieces of that pie, so to speak. Yeah, um, I'm sure your wife has students and families who right who had who, who who speak of it in similar kinds of terms. But there's one woman who I who I do an oral history with, who I quote in the book, who again uh, is. Uh, I don't want to give the impression that the book is only about Jamestown, Tennessee, and Muncie, Indiana, but because um, it really covers the whole region. But I'll tell another little anecdote from there. Who, you know, probably grew up in in Jamestown in the 1950s, and as she says to me, and as again as I quote her saying in the book, going to Muncie um, in Indiana, going to Muncie was like going to the bathroom. It's just like everybody did it, you know, when you were, when she was growing up in the 1950s, it was just, it was like, you know, two states away, 300 miles. Yeah. You just, everybody went to Muncie. It was just taken for granted that, you know, not only were half of your schoolmates were their uncles and fathers and cousins already in Muncie or places like Muncie, but when the time came, you would also, because there was just nothing to do there, you know, and it was, it was just like going to the bathroom. It was just something everybody did, um, and uh, and I think that's right. In 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 many parts of the of the rural South, that remains the case. You know, maybe not Muncie anymore, and may, or certainly not Muncie anymore, and probably not the Midwest. But you think of the big growing economies of the Sun Belt and the Southwest and places like that. You know, big cities. Um, within the region or, or or some of these more, like you say, right, the sort of uh, post-union, low-wage industrial uh, infrastructure that has been built up in in Alabama and and, and other places. Um, but they're 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 leaving 
the the small towns where there's still nothing to do, you know, still or still not enough to do to really make a living, support a family. Right, right, absolutely. And I mean, and and something I can't help but wonder is, you know, how many of our best and brightest have left us? Uh, and that's a trend that Alabama and and other southern states have have often wrestled with. Um, you know, many of my peers from our earliest ages, like right after high school, up through, you know, our 20s and 30s, I've seen so many of them leave, right? And and now it's, I'm going to go out west, you know, I'm going to go out west to Colorado and to California, maybe Austin. Um, and so I've seen a lot of that. And of course, some of that is political as well. And, you know, it's not just economic opportunities, but there's a lot of people, frankly, who, um, if they're more progressive minded or forward thinking, they decide to bail. They decide to get out of town, and um, and so that's that's a trend that you know we've we've just dealt with time after time. And uh, you know, I've held I've had many conversations with folks who've asked me like, well, why don't you just leave? You know, and, and that's that's a tough thing for us to deal with. Those of us who who are born and raised here, but who who believe it could be better, uh, and want to see it better. Uh, you know, so that's that's a trend that, you know, has continued. And so I think that, you know, that's what I find really interesting about your book is as it speaks to it speaks to our existence today as much as, as it did in the mid 20th century, I feel like. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I really do. And I, I hope the book does resonate for people for, for that reason, uh, as well as, you know, because of their the interest in the historical story it tells. But I think you're really you're really right about that, Adam. Yeah, absolutely. So the last thing I wanted to ask you is is just to maybe pass along any any wisdom, any reflections you have, because you have been studying the working class for quite some time. You've studied the labor movement and uh, in particular, you've looked at the South. So for those of us, you know, the Valley Labor Report, we're an Alabama only our Alabama Union Talk radio show. We are speaking to kind of current union members and activists and organizers. Is there anything that you that's really stuck with you in your study of the labor movement that that you think is worth reflecting on as as current unionist in the South? Yeah. All right. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a kind of long winded answer, I think, but it's gonna okay. I, I think it'll I think it'll circle back. And in some ways, this is a lesson not for you and your listeners and your um, comrades in the movement, but it is a lesson of the book about Southern working people and unionists that I that I intend for a different kind of audience. And it's a, I'll tell a brief little sort of summarize an anecdote that I talk about it or, or, or a discussion that I talk about at some length in the book and then circle back to the way I think it is relevant perhaps to you. But when Southern poor white Southerners displaced farmers, out of work miners became, began arriving en masse in northern factories, midwestern factories, during you know the first real waves, or in the 1920s um, and into the 1930s, they were often first recruited by northern employers because they were thought to be so desperately poor, so mm. uneducated, so backwards and conservative in their political and cultural identities, such. And I use this term very intentionally in, in scare quotes, such hillbillies, right? In all of the right. ugly, epithetic, the ways that term is meant as a slur, um, that Northern employers wanted them to come work in their factories because they thought, oh, they'll work for less money. Um, they'll take, they'll work as hard as we make them work because they've got no other options. And they're all these Bible-thumping, conservative, uh, uh, kind of, you know, native-born, white Protestant, they'll never be drawn to the ideologies of labor, radicalism, of socialism, anarchism, trade unionism that these immigrant workers have brought over with them from the old country. Mm -hmm. So northern employers, they want they gonna they sent buses down to 
you know, they, 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 to down to bus people up to work in uh, factories in, in uh, Middletown, Ohio, in, in Cleveland, in Detroit, all these places in Flint, Michigan, uh, because intent say we want, you know, looking for poor rural whites to come, Southern whites to come work in their factories. And they weren't the only ones who thought that um, those migrants, those workers would be that way. Even other working people and even members of the Midwestern union movement said, oh, we don't want these hillbillies to get jobs at the factories. They'll never join the union. Um, they'll just undermine wages. Um, they'll take, they'll work for less money than our members will. Um, they'll be strike breakers and scabs and will sooner follow the orders of their bosses than engage in class conscious solidaristic action with other workers of different backgrounds and ethnicities and et cetera. Um, and this was the conventional wisdom, again, by both Northern employers and Northern workers and unionists and others when Southern white migrants began entering the Midwestern workforce during the 20s and 30s. The reality was in fact the opposite. Southern migrants were active participants in the great sit-down strike, say, that swept the Midwest during the 1930s in places like Flint, Michigan, in places like Akron, Ohio, where the rubber plants, particularly Goodyear, became the site of the very first major industrial sit-down strikes of the, of the late 1930s. And throughout the region, uh, the um, stereotypes and cliches and received wisdom about the political identity and behavior that poor white people and particularly poor white people from the South could be expected to engage in was directly contradicted by their actual behavior amidst the great turmoil that swept Midwestern the Midwestern industrial economy during the 1930s in the midst of the Great Depression and during the rise of the modern industrial union movement, the birth of the CIO and, and all the, the formation of the, of the great industrial unions of the 20th century. I talk a lot about this at, at, at length in the book. So that's one of the stories that one of my chapters tells about this sort of um, uh, kind of ironic outcome that even though they these workers were kind of recruited as strike breakers, as scabs, as low-wage replacement labor, thinking that they would not join forces. In fact, they they were in many cases among the most militant um, participants in those labor actions. Um, so that I think so there's a lesson that is mm -hmm. a, that's a historical lesson, which I think there remains contemporary relevance too, that many people who write and think about the white working class generally, the Southern white working class today, think of it only and singularly as a monolithically conservative political group. Um, and history has proven that to be mistaken. And I think, I believe that contemporary politics can prove that to be mistaken once again, that a robust, growing, fighting, organized Southern labor movement can and will find that white working people will be motivated by their class interests um, if it is possible to build a movement that can transform the Southern regional economy and make crap jobs into good jobs and non-union jobs into union jobs and build the you know, kind of more robust and expansive social welfare apparatus that might grow out of that as it did once before in, in other unionized uh, uh, centers of union activity in the country. Um, I think you guys know that. You know that, and your 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 the people you the rest of the Southern labor movement knows that 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 it's possible that that the Southern working class, the Southern white working class, isn't 
hopelessly uh, reactionary and conservative right. and, and uh, only voting on their sort of cultural resentments and blah, blah, blah. And, um, but um, I don't think many people in the broader, maybe not even in the broader labor movement, certainly in anything like the kind of left liberal political establishment thinks of Southern white working people as anything other than Trump voters, right? And MAGA types. And um, part of what my book spends some significant try time trying to understand is why white working people in the South and the Midwest have become increasingly conservative in their political behavior by the second half of the 20th century. But I'm at pains throughout the book to say it is not always necessarily automatically this way. We have to attend to the actual economic events and uh, driving political and cultural events which made history turn out this way, while also being attentive to those moments in the past, again, like the great sit-down strikes and labor upheavals of the 1930s, when history wasn't that way, right? And draw lessons from those moments that are not just historically anomalous, but can be models for a contemporary labor, po labor politics and contemporary you know, left politics more broadly um, to, to gain purchase in parts of the country, the South in particular, where it, it has less of it right now. Right. Right. Amen, brother. I really, yeah, I appreciate what you had to say there because um, I think it's very easy to, to write off all of the South. Um, I, you know, I know how dominant reactionary attitudes are in the South because I live around it every day. You know, I, I don't need, you know, national media to tell me that. Uh, but I also see the incredible nuance that's here, uh, you know, because someone like me, for example, a white working class guy who's a diehard unionist, you know, I've got a little bit of an accent. I'm a novelty. Uh, you know, I'm not really supposed to exist. Uh, but there's a lot more of us out here than folks would uh, would, would expect. And um, I think what you find and I think what you find is in the South where you do find the labor militants, they are some of the most dedicated uh, and some of the most militant that you will find um, because of the struggles that we we undertake and because of, you know, the environment we're surrounded by. And and, uh, you know, we can't take. Uh, racism and, and bigotry for granted because it is such a pervasive part of our upbringing and our culture here that we we have to tackle that head on. You know that's not something we can ignore. So yeah, I really I really appreciate that, and I appreciate you know the the it's so like I said, it's so easy to discount the South to write us off uh, and. Believe me, I feel that way sometimes. I feel like I want to. I want to ride, ride off, ride off my home, my home. You know, I feel that way. It's easy, and there's a reason so many of us have fled the South. Um, and, and you know, people have to make that decision for themselves and their families. And I don't begrudge anyone for doing that. But uh, there is something here that uh, is resilient about the people and about the, the labor movement that continues to exist here and will continue to, to grow. And um, I think the rest of the country can't write us off. If anything, the rest of the country has to really help us out uh, because where the South has, has been allowed to fester as a bastion of reaction, it has drugged the rest of the country down. And whereas the South has been allowed to, to, to operate like an internal colony, it has driven the rest of the conditions down. Uh, and so, like you, you pointed out with the auto, the auto industry, I mean, yes, we, we now have more auto manufacturing in the South, but it was brought here, right, because it was closer than Mexico. You know, I, I mean, is the reality. Um, you know, so... So, uh, Max, was there anything else you wanted to say before uh, I let you go? I, I really, I, I love the way you close things. I, I love the way you closed it. Well, good. I'm, I, I, I'm glad I think I could, could circle back and uh, to, to, to uh, meet your, your challenge of a lesson to you guys because really I have nothing to offer you by way of lessons. But I'm inspired by the 
work that you're doing and by your own um, dedication to not, um, well, I, 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 you would never turn turn your back on your region, but I mean to 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 believe even in the face of um, uh, the the real challenges that exist, that it's possible to build a robust, militant, fighting, growing labor movement in the South. And I agree with you. It's not only is it uh, is it possible, but it's necessary for the whole country. Without it, it it, it will the, the 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 political dynamics that we are stuck in nationally in the labor movement and 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 in electoral politics i think will continue there's no way to get out of it and to build a kind of equitable um labor market and a kind of true political democracy in the way that we all want to see without um believing that the southern working class is going to be at, at the fore of of reversing some of the countervailing political tendencies that we see all around us right now they they will be they have to be and they have been before and they and they can be again. So uh no, I, I'm glad to have had a chance to talk to you. I hope we'll get to do it again. It's been it's been a pleasure. And um uh yeah, I'm glad you guys are doing this show. Thank you so much. So Max Fraser, I really appreciate it. He is the author of upcoming book, Hillbilly Highway, comes out in September. Keep your eyes out for that. Uh Max, thanks for your thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you, Adam. All right, folks. That's going to do it for the fourth episode of Shop Talk. Hope it was worth your time. I really appreciate everyone listening. If you enjoyed it, please share with your network and make sure you are plugged into our work. Uh, you can follow us at the Valley Labor Report pretty much wherever you find anything. YouTube, Facebook, Spotify, Apple, you name it. Check out the Valley Labor Report. That website is tvlr.fm. Make sure you sign up for our email list so you can uh, stay plugged into our new articles as they come out and as they're released. Stay tuned to the Valley Labor Report on Saturday mornings starting at 9.30 a.m. Central, live on WVNN, YouTube, and Facebook. And don't forget to like, review, share, and subscribe. And finally, if you share our mission to grow the Southern labor movement, if you share our belief in the power of solidarity and co collective organization, and if you want media that is for working people, by working people, please consider donating at tvlr.fm slash donate. All power to the working class. Solidarity, y'all.